Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Pastor Daryl Bentley, the Associate Ministerial Director and Evangelism Coordinator for the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor Daryl. Well, we've made it to Romans 14. How many of you can count to at least two? How many Sabbaths do I have left with you? How many chapters in Romans do we have left? We've got two more. So I'd like to kindly direct your attention to Mr. Nick Connor. He is our first elder that will be taking up the mantle of our preaching calendar. I'm not going to focus on Romans next week. I'm going to focus on what the Lord would have me to say to you as a final sermon in my official capacity as your pastor. So I don't know what that message is going to be yet. So pray for me that I can figure that out. But I'm very excited that we do have capable elders that are willing and able to step up to the plate, carry forward the message of hope, because we want to stay consistent in preaching the Word of God. What do you say? That's what separates us. We've got to be consistent and dedicated to the Word of God. So as we get started, looking at Romans 14 today, Romans 14 is a very troublesome chapter. It's a chapter that many Christians, many evangelical Christians, actually use to kind of refute some of the things that we as Seventh-day Adventists would teach. We'll explore that as we go a little further, but I want to say this to you. I don't have to be afraid of any question that anybody from the street will pose to me as it relates to Adventist beliefs. I don't have to be afraid of that. You know why? Because the Word of God is its own interpreter. Amen? And as long as the Word of God is allowed to do the interpreting, as long as the Word of God is allowed to be the messenger, then I have nothing to fear, do you? So let's get into the Word. Can we pray? Gracious Father, I thank you that we have the freedom to open your Word, to study, to dialogue, to share, to proclaim those things which you have given us. But today, Father, as every time before, I come before you with the recognition that I need your help. Father, without you, I have nothing of any value to say. Lord, with you, your word can be delivered with power and conviction. And I plead with you, Father, that you would forgive me, that you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness, and that you would just fill me with your spirit, that I might be able to bring meat in due season to your children. And Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters. Each one comes today with burdens, with cares, concerns. And today, Father, I pray that we would have the courage to leave those at the altar, leave them with you, that we would take up the yoke of Jesus because he said, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. So Lord, please let that be a reality for us today as we spend this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question that may be difficult for you to answer. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, it's intended to be more rhetorical. If you want to raise your hands, I won't try to stop you. But how many of you would say that you're the type that's easily offended? Joe, did you notice no hands went flying up? Did, I mean, but I'm wondering, are you the type? Would you consider yourself the type that's easily offended? Do you take things to heart that maybe someone didn't mean 
to be offensive. How often do you think as a pastor I have had the opportunity to be offended? I've got a retired pastor here with me. Pastor, pastor Tony, stand up. I want him to see who you are. This is one of my best friends and brothers, Pastor Tony Messer and his wife, Jolene. I love this brother. He's doing our church plants. We're working on a church plant for Rochester Hills. He and his wife are leading the charge for that. But Pastor Tony, let me ask you a question. Would you say this statement is true? Many times the pastor is the last one to know and the first one to be blamed. Is there any accuracy to that? I've had people upset at me and I didn't even know it happened. Well, boom, they'll just machine gun you and be like, what are you talking about? Take a breath. Please tell me what you're talking about. Elder Frank, am I on point? Huh? Right on, he says. But I made a decision a long time ago. I have to choose not to be offended. How would Jesus' ministry and life worked out had he chosen to live as an offended one? Did Jesus often have times where he was presented with a situation that was very offensive? I mean, as hard as sometimes a pastor will have it, I can assure you, neither of these gentlemen nor myself have ever been run out the city, taken to the cliff, and attempted to be thrown over the cliff. That happened to Jesus in his hometown, yes or no? But we live in a world that loves to be offended. We live in a world, we exist in a culture where people just can't wait for the next time to be offended so that they have a reason to complain. I had the privilege of doing a mission trip in Ecuador back before the world lost its mind. We were in Ecuador. One of our team members was a young man from California, and he was of Filipino descent. He had been born and raised in the U.S. He had been born and raised in California, but both his mother and father were Filipino, and he looked completely Filipino but he spoke just as clear of English as anybody else. But when we're in Ecuador, how many Filipinos do you think that the children in this small town on the Peruvian border, how many Asian folks had do you think they'd run into? None. In fact, the kids at the school that we visited, they weren't really even familiar with a whole lot of different types of Asian folks. They had only, many of these kids had only been exposed to Chinese. So when they saw this guy on our team, they wanted to respond to him in what they thought was a culturally appropriate way. So they came up to him, and in their very best native Spanish, with a Chinese accent, they said to him, as they bowed to him, ¿Cómo estás? Over and over, kids kept coming up to this young man, ah, ¿Cómo estás? They weren't making fun of him. They weren't trying to do something culturally insensitive and I wish you could have seen this young man's response. How many of you think he got offended? How many of you think that he just smiled with the love of Jesus and said, I'm not Chinese? <laughs> he kept saying it over and over. I'm not Chinese. I'm American. I look Filipino, but I'm not Chinese. And when the kids found out, they were like, oh, you know, they, were, they felt embarrassed. But how many folks in our country if you did something like that, would say you're doing something offensive. Now, let me ask you a question. Are there things in this world that are offensive? Not a trick question. What do you think? To judge someone based on the color of their skin and to withhold things from them, is that offensive? Is it wrong? Absolutely. So friends, I'm not here to tell you that there aren't things that are not offensive. There are some offensive things. But I am also here to tell you, not everything nowadays that's labeled offensive is actually offensive. 
so many times, I'm so sick of hearing about cancel culture. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you heard cancel culture? Some of you are looking at me like I've got three heads. This whole idea now, cancel culture, you've said something at some point in your life that somebody deemed offensive, maybe it even was offensive, and now because of that mistake, you have been canceled. You no longer should be able to work. You should not have a livelihood. You should be wiped out from the face of the earth. How many of you are thankful we serve a God who's not into cancel culture? And friends, I'll be honest with you. We need to be careful how we talk to each other. Let's not go around saying ignorant things that needlessly tear people down. What do you say? I think that's a good idea. I think it's a Christian thing to do. What does Christ tell us? How should we treat others? Do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. It's the whole golden rule. But we live in a culture that is just waiting, that is eager, that cannot wait to be offended again so that I have something about which to complain. I don't think that that's the way God would have us to operate. In fact, one of my goals with stressing this to you today is to ask us to step away from this toxic culture that dominates our society. Let's be different like Jesus has asked us to be different. What do you say? So if we're going to be different, what does it look like? Well, I'm a firm believer, as I mentioned in kind of my opening remarks for the sermon, I'm a firm believer that Scripture interprets itself. I believe that Scripture explains itself. With that in mind, let's remember some of the ground which we've traveled together. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, please. We're building our way to Romans 14, but we're going to stop at Romans chapter 12. Let's get a little bit of a reminder of how God is calling us to live with one another. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Let me know when you're there, please. If you need a little more time, say, have mercy. We'll wait on you. I get paid by the month. Isn't that beautiful? I don't have to be in a hurry, Roy. I can just preach till y'all leave. Romans 12, 18, are you there? It says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, do what? Live how? Live at peace. How far can I live at peace? How much of it's my responsibility? Joe, can I pick on you? See, this brother sits up front consistently, so thank you for just being a nice soundboard for me. Let's say that Joe is ornery. I'm not going to ask Sue whether he is. I'm just going to assume that he's not. But let's just say for argument's sake that he's ornery and I have offended him in some way. I find out that I've offended him and I go to him and I say, Joe, you know, Sue was telling me that what I said to you really hurt your feelings. I'm super sorry about that. I didn't mean to hurt you. Will you forgive me? And Joe looks at me and says, you know what, Pastor, you're a jerk. Why don't you find somewhere else to be? Have I done my part? Have I tried to live peaceably as much as possible with Joe in that made-up, totally fictitious scenario. And you would forgive me, right, because you're a great guy. Absolutely. So the point is, sometimes we attempt to carry the responsibility of others. When what you do or don't do with something that I've done or attempted to make right, I can't be responsible for what you won't do. Have you ever had people in your life, they won't let you make it right? They love to make you suffer? You know, I'm sorry that I did that. Genuinely, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm genuinely sorry that I said that. And they don't let you have that forgiveness. Saints, I came to the conclusion a long time ago, and I'm going to quote my friend Craig Morgan. Anybody remember Craig Morgan? I'm going to quote Craig Morgan. That's a problem. It's just not my problem. If I've done everything in my power to reconcile with you, 
and you won't let me, then that's your problem because I've done all I can. So the idea that is presented here in Romans that I don't want us to miss is this idea to reconcile and live at peace as much as possible. Are you with me so far? All right, so now let's go to Romans 14. Only two chapters ahead. We're in chapter 12. Then we're going to go to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 and beginning in verse 1. And I want us to see several sections, okay? You guys may have noticed over the course of my ministry with you, I typically preach from the New King James Version of the Bible. There's several reasons for that. Number one, I feel like the language is a little more understandable than the King James, but it's also very close to the way that the King James has been translated. The New King James is a word-for-word translation. Some are thought-for-thought. But also, another thing I like about the New King James is it tries to break the thoughts into little paragraphs. Uh, There's a fancy word that we learn in school, training for ministers. It's called a pericope. Say it with me, pericope. So now you can go this week. I dare you to try to use pericope in a sentence. Good luck with that. And it's spelled, it looks like pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. But when we talk about studying passages of Scripture at our undergrad level and even at the seminary, we're talking about pericopes. The New King James translators have tried to break down the passages of Scripture into these various pericopes. So you'll see verses 1 through 4 is talking about a particular item, right? And then they see a transition starting with verse 5 that goes through verse 13, basically. And then picking up with verse 14 through 18, you have another little section, and then you have 19 through 23, okay? So for those of you that are aspiring homileticians or sermon givers, there's a little tip for you. But what I'm going to submit to you is you basically have two ideas that are being presented and they are interwoven, they are interconnected in this chapter. Let's go back to the first of the chapter, and let's see it together. Receive one who is how in their faith? Weak. Now, if you think of somebody being weak in their faith, what's the first thing comes to your mind? New? Okay, so maybe somebody who's new. Is it possible, Nick, since you said new, can I pick on you a little bit? Is it possible for someone to be weak in their faith and they've been in the church 30 years? Some people are hard-headed. I wouldn't know anything about that since it's not one of my character traits. The Bible refers to them as stiff-necked. You ever seen that in the text? Stiff-necked, hard-headed, stubborn. It's the same thing, right? We all suffer on some level or another. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. And now he presents, okay, so here is one way that this perceived weakness of faith is being presented. Okay, here's how it manifests itself. For one believes... He may eat what type of things or how many things? All things, but he who is weak eats only what? I cannot tell you how many times somebody outside the Adventist church has tried to use this verse to tell me that the Adventist promotion of vegetarianism is not biblical. There it is. You Adventists claim that you should only eat vegetables. You're weak. Friends, can we just be true to the text? Is that what it's talking about? Well, let's establish a few things. First and foremost, to whom was the book of Romans initially written to? Let's look at it together. Let's see if we can find it in the text. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Hold your place there in chapter 14, and let's look at a few places together. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, 16. The last sentence, tell me the two groups that are identified. Jews and Greeks. Okay, so Romans 1.16, 16, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And this whole thing to the Jews first, it was just Paul's way of ministering, right? Because that was the people with whom he grew up. So when he would come into a new area, he would minister to the Jews first because that's his most natural connections in the community. How many of you, if you're going to share the gospel, would rather start with family and friends than complete strangers? Well, depending on if your family's honor, you might want to start, but you get the point, right? It's a little easier to share with people who already trust you. That's all he's trying to say, all right? Romans chapter 2, verse 9, a little bit farther forward. So we have an identification of Jews and Greeks. And of course, when we say Greek, we can largely just say Gentile as well, but he's specific. Romans 2, 9, last part says, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. And again, who are the two groups? Jews and Greeks. Is he being consistent so far? All right, one last passage, Romans 10, 12. Romans 10, 12. And I really love this passage, this verse. For there is what, friends? No difference, no distinction. Between whom? Between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So is it fair to say that those being addressed in this book specifically are of Jewish and Greek descent? Okay, now let's get a little broader explanation for Greek. How many of you have heard of the term Hellenization? Heard of Hellenization? Hellenization comes from the idea of Alexander the Great's mother, Helene, right? And art and culture, Greek art and culture being spread not only to areas where they held dominant control, but Hellenization actually occurred in many other corners. So you could be Greek in the sense that you have accepted some tenets from Greek culture, embraced some of their art and philosophies. Are you with me? So when we talk about Greek, it does have a little broader implication than just of Grecian origin or ethnicity. So a few questions for you. Let's deal with the Jews first. What were some of the tendencies of Jewish believers when they were part of a Christian group? Were they ever concerned about circumcision? Did they ever try to push that on other believers? Did Paul have to deal with that in some other epistles? Okay. Did they have a tendency to promote salvation by works? Did Paul deal with that in the very first chapter of Romans and subsequent chapters? Absolutely, right? So they had a tendency to press for circumcision. They had a tendency to press for salvation by works. What about the keeping of feast days? Do you think that there was a tendency to push for the keeping of feast days? Absolutely. What about being overly rigid and literalistic when it came to interpreting the scriptures? How well did it go over with the Jews when Jesus said to be saved, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood? How many of them really got that? They thought it was cannibalism, right? He's crazy. He was, of course, being symbolic. Unfortunately, some Christians have missed that. Tendency that they had was also to think that they had a greater claim to God because of their ethnic heritage. Does all of that make sense from what you understand about Jewish converts to Christianity? What about the Greeks? What are some of the sins that we read about in some of the Hellenized provinces around? Anybody remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? There was a guy that had a very unique relationship with his stepmother. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Paul even goes so far as to say such things are not mentioned even among the Gentiles 
yet here you are, you have a father's son who is sleeping with his stepmother. There were issues over and over with sexual immorality, sexual impurity. There was a tendency within Greek thinkers to value logic over truth. Do you even remember in Paul's writings, he tried to use some of this, and then he finally came to the point, he said, you know what? I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him what? Crucified. Paul even had to adjust his method because he was overly trusting at some point in his ministry on logic. There was a tendency among Greek believers to take a more mystical approach to things. You figure they came out of a religious system where there wasn't one God, there was a a what? A plethora of gods, right? They had a tendency because of these things to be more superstitious. So friends, with these mindsets in place, Paul is now writing to this group of believers. So if you have a group of believers, Jewish believers, who have been saying, listen, that thing that you've been worshiping, that thing that you were worshiping over here, that was nothing. That was garbage. That was just some trinket. So that meat that you won't eat because it was offered to one of those idols, that's just you being foolish. Can you hear those types of conversations? But imagine in the mind of one of these pagan believers who have now been converted, they still have family and friends who are regularly going to these pagan temples, regularly offering sacrifices. And do you think that they were also still getting invited to temple services? Absolutely. So you have these things, the underlying cultural tensions that are at work. So when we go back to Romans 14, let's go back to Romans 14 now. Who do you think in verse 2 that it would be referring to that's only eating the vegetables when it comes to these two groups of people? Hmm. I got two votes for Jews, no votes for pagans. Who would really have had more of a problem with it? The Jew who never worshipped the idols? but a clean piece of meat has been presented to them. They had no desire for that idol, and it was offered to an idol. Who cares? Would not the pull be a little stronger on the heart of the pagan who had been a part of those ceremonies? I had an elder one time. He was very, very, very staunchly against any kind of music that he deemed to be too rock-oriented or too, that was not just a traditional hymn-type thing. And his reasoning for that, because I asked him one day, I said, listen, there is a lot of good contemporary music that can be presented in a way that's not offensive. I believe that. Anybody else in that same mindset? Just because it was written last week or last month doesn't make it evil. Okay? I said, what's your thing with it? Why does it bother you? He said, you know, pastor, I grew up going to all kinds of rock concerts, and I was so involved with that, and I was using the drugs and everything that was associated with that. He said, when I hear those types of beats or music in the church, it takes my mind right back to that thing, and it just really causes me to stumble. Did he have a legitimate reason for feeling the way that he felt? Because of his past. So that's why in my mind, when I look at this, it doesn't definitively say who's having the issue, but I tend to believe it might be more the pagans. I tend to believe it might be more the ones who came out of this system. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and let's see if we can get any light that might help us with this. 1 Corinthians 8, and let's land, well, let's just pick up with verse 4, I guess. Therefore, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, are you with me? Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is what? 
It's nothing. And that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there are how many gods? One God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, verse 7 says, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol, okay, so pause, who would have had consciousness of the idols? Who would have struggled with identifying that the idols were not real? Jews or pagans? The pagans, right? We see a very clear delineation made that probably the ones struggling are the ones who grew up in the system. Does that make sense, yes or no? They have knowledge with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, okay? And their conscience being what? Weak. So now notice the correlation. Here in 1 Corinthians 8, we have someone who has been associated with idols. For them to be drawn to that puts them in a position of being weak spiritually. So does the same language seem to come out in Romans 14, yes or no? It's very similar, right? And if we accept that they're the same author, it makes sense that they're talking to the same group. So basically what was happening? Well, essentially what was happening was, Roy, can you be my pagan? Roy's my pagan for right now. So Roy's our converted pagan. He comes over to my house, just your average Jewish guy. We're going to have supper together. Roy, come on over, brother. We're going to have this big leg of lamb. Roy, in his mind, where did he buy it? And maybe he doesn't want to offend me, but he very subtly, well, that looks delicious. Who's your favorite butcher? Well, it's the guy over by Diana's temple. He always has the best cuts. Roy knows that it's more than likely been presented, the other part of that animal has been presented to Diana. And so he's worried, and now he, oh man, I don't want to be tied to that. And then since Roy tells me, well, you know, that was only, I'd really prefer not to eat that because of where it came from. I'm just going to have your potatoes and tomatoes. Now I'm judging him as a brother in Christ that he's weak because he doesn't have the same liberty of conscience that I have. So let me ask you, saints, does that ever happen in the church? That we judge someone else because they don't eat the way that I eat? How many of you think that Jesus was vegetarian? Had a lady tell me in Collegedale, Tennessee, told me and my best friend, Corey Herthel, she told us that the reason Jesus wasn't vegetarian was because he didn't have the spirit of prophecy. You think I'm crazy. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. She looked at us and with seemingly normal faculties told us Jesus wasn't vegetarian because he didn't have a spirit of prophecy. I was dumbfounded. We looked at each other and we're like, did she just say that? And that's when you want to ask somebody, are you, you're messing with me. Jesus didn't have the spirit of prophecy. How about Jesus was spirit of prophecy? Unless I totally missed something. Now, I'm not here to debate whether or not you should be vegetarian or tear it down or build it up. I'm simply saying, how many times have we judged a brother or sister because we don't think that they're where we are or where they should be? And now all of a sudden we create this standard because I feel like I've arrived here and that's a holier place than you are. Now I look down on you because you're not at that same holy place that I am. That's what was happening. They were judging one another because of this. Let's go back, if we would please, to Romans 14. 
I love verses 3 and 4. Romans 14, verses 3 and 4. And I want to be clear on the record today. Did you hear me say that Jesus had the spirit of prophecy? Are we clear on that today? Somebody be right in Elder Mitchell. Glad you took that pastor. He didn't say Jesus. <laughs> Romans 14, verse 3. Are you with me? Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. In other words, if these guys are functioning according to the dictates of their conscience, as the Holy Spirit has led them thus far, leave them alone. Let them exist with God as he has led them. Do you see that, yes or no? And I love what he says in verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? Who's the servant that's being judged and who's the Lord here? The servant is me. The servant is you. The servant is the Jew or the Greek that's entangled in this debate. And the Lord of those servants is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul's question really is this. Who are you to judge a child of God that he is leading? I think God's big enough to take care of his children. What do you say? We're going to skip verses 5 through 13 for a moment. And I want us to deal with section 14 through 18. This is another, what was that fancy word that I taught you? Starts with a P. Somebody said it. Pericope. Yeah, if you say it like that, it feels better, right? Pericope. This is another pericope, but it's tied to the first pericope. So here we go. Verse 14, verses 14 through 18. Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. How many times do you think that that has been used to tear down the biblical teaching and distinction between clean and unclean meats? How many of you think I may have been faced with that question? Again, let's be faithful to the text. Who are the two groups that are being addressed at the church in Rome? Who are the two primary groups? Say it with me again, Jews and Greeks. Did the Jews have an issue with things being ceremonially unclean or clean? Of course they did. Let's go to Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 7, and let's look at it together. Mark what? Mark chapter 7. We'll look at verse 1 just so that we set the stage. We'll know the players that are involved here. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, please. Who is there? Got the Pharisees. This was the very ultra-conservative wing of the Jewish religion. Okay, these were the ultracons. Some of the scribes. These were the people that were the professionals on the law. They knew every point of the law, right? And they came together to him, the him is Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, verse 2 says, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, what type of hands? With defiled, COVID-filled hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees, and not just the Pharisees, notice now, it's a broader encompassing. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a normal way. So now it's not just that you washed your hands, did you do it correctly? How many of you have that timer on your phone or your watch that you have it go off so that you know you're washing your hands long enough? How many of you feel like you know when your hands are clean without Siri telling you? Forgive me, but I am just sick and tired of being nannied. I don't need everybody to nanny me, okay? My mom taught me how to wash hands. If you don't wash your hands, shame on you, wash your hands. That's just nasty. But they didn't wash their hands in a special way. Notice verse 3 tells us, 
that it wasn't just a special way, it was an established tradition of the elders. So when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat. That's these Pharisees and all these Jews. They do not eat unless they wash. And you may think, okay, so they washed hands. They were astute observers of microbiology and they wanted to make sure they weren't passing germs. No, had nothing to do with that because notice what all they're washing. And there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. So saints, if you want somebody to clean your house and to do it right, find you a Pharisee. How did Jesus feel about it? Look at verse 8 and see if we can figure it out. I'm not against anybody being clean. In fact, I like clean. I don't like clutter. I don't like to look at my vehicle and feel like I'm riding around in a dumpster. I'm not against clean. But that was not the point. Jesus got the point. Notice in verse 8 what he says to them. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And in case we were curious what he means, to which tradition was he referring, he says it, he spells it out. This tradition of the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Now, why do you think this practice of washing became prevalent? Let's review some of Christian structure. Do you remember the sanctuary service? Do you remember the items that made up the court? Do you remember that there was an altar of burnt offering? And then there was another special piece of furniture, if you will, special item before the priest would enter the tabernacle. What was that special piece of furniture? It was a bronze laver, right? Same word that we would use for lavatory. In other words, it was a big bronze sink that the priests would wash in as a ceremonial washing before they would go into the tabernacle. You remember that? Which group of people were selected by God to be the priests? The tribe of Levi. Originally, right, the descendants of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. Do you think it's without reason that now, well, only this tribe does the ceremonial washing, but what if all of us just did it? Well, if it makes them special, I want to be special. Aren't you glad we don't live in a society where everybody has to be special? Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Friends, they were attempting, and Jesus hit the nail on the head. They were so concerned with outward washings and going through special rituals that they felt like that made them holy, when really the only thing that could make them or us holy was when the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus, the blood of Christ, washes the sin from our lives. So now, though, you have this group of people who have bought into that system. The Holy Spirit has touched their hearts. They see a need for Jesus, and they want Jesus. They accept Jesus. They become Christians, but they also bring a few things into the church with them. Guess what one of the things were that they tried to bring into the church? These ceremonial things, these ceremonial washings. And so, friends, the verse is not talking about clean and unclean meats at all. Here's how we can see these things. Let's go back to Romans 14, when we see that this is tied to contextually the eating of certain types of meats that have been offered or not offered. We see that there is discussion in the passage where it talks about esteeming one day above another day. So we're going to tie this together now. We're going to back up a little bit and help us understand this by now looking at some of the verses in Romans 14, 5 through 13. Let's tie these two things together, okay? Because we skipped over this section, yes or no? 
But to skip over that section means that we miss some of the contextual clues. So now we're going to go back. We've tied the two food things together, but now let's go back and let's draw out the contextual clue that tells us what this is talking about. Verse 5, Romans 14. And this is a famous passage where many a person will tell you the Sabbath doesn't matter. Hold on, let's see if that works. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. Many, many, many times. I've had somebody, they come, they learn about the Sabbath. They study about the Sabbath. They become convicted on the Sabbath. And then they go back and talk to their preacher. And their preacher takes them to Romans 14. And they say, listen, those Adventists, they're really well-intended, and I know they're trying to be faithful to what they think they should be, but they're really missing out on the freedom that the New Testament brings. And just see here, they want to esteem that Saturday, let them esteem it. We esteem the first day because the Lord was resurrected on the first day. Somebody say amen. But how many of you think that conversation has happened thousands of times? Okay, here's my question for you. Where is the fourth commandment found? Where would you quote it in Scripture if you were using the book of Exodus? Exodus 20, beginning in which verse? Verse 8, I want to challenge you right now. Go to that commandment and show me where in the commandment regarding the seventh day it has anything to do with food. Pastor Tony smiled at me. Why are you smiling at me? You're just a nice guy? Why do you think he's smiling at me? Where do you find in the commandment to worship on the Sabbath day, where do you find it having anything to do with food? It's not there. But what do we find being tied to food? Say it a little louder, Mick. Feast days. Does the very fact that it's called a feast day probably mean it has something to do with eating? How many of you have ever been to a feast fast? <laughs> I'd say that's an oxymoron, amen? The fact that it's a feast tells you that it has to do with food. Now let's go back to the text. Now that we've remembered Jewish culture, now that we've remembered some of the heritage, notice, he who observes the day, right? He does all of this for the Lord. We're in verse six. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks. Do you see that observing a particular day and eating or not eating something are directly correlated together, yes or no? Friends, by the very fact that these two things are correlated and conjugated together, it can't be a reference to the Sabbath. It just doesn't work. The Sabbath is never tied. Now, were there days that they called a Sabbath rest that didn't fall on the seventh day? Yeah, Sabbath, Shabbat, just simply means rest. Okay, so you have to study the context to know whether it's talking about the weekly seventh-day Sabbath or if it's just a day off that happened to fall on the right day of the calendar for this particular feast. Friends, all I want to say to you is be consistent with the text. So if we know now the context leading into this clean and uncleanness has to do with the observance of feast days, were there any requirements tied to these feast days? What about the Day of Atonement? Did you have to participate in the Day of Atonement to stay in the nation of Israel? What happens if you didn't? They give you a citation and smack you on the hand. You're kicked out. You're ostracized. You are alienated. 
you're not allowed to be a part of the family because you did not participate. Were there ceremonial things that they do that made them either ceremonially clean or unclean? Were there certain rituals that you had to go through if you touched a dead body? What if a lady had to take care of lady things? Enough said, you know where I'm going, right? We see this entire system that was in place and people were ceremonially clean or unclean. And we see that they're trying to hold on to these things. How do you know, pastor, that they were trying to hold on to those things? Let's go to Acts 15. Let's see it together. I don't want you to just take my word for it. In fact, if you don't remember another thing, that I've attempted to share with you in the six plus years that I've been with you, please remember this. Don't take a pastor's word for it. Know it for yourself. Trust your pastor. I pray that you can trust me. I pray that I'll never give you the wrong information, but study it for yourself. Amen? Know it for yourself. Acts 15. We're in Acts 15, and let's look at verse 1. This will bring us down the home stretch. We're going to tie these things together. Verse 1, Acts 15. Are you there? And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Is that true, yes or no? No. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, I like how the Bible put that. They had no small dissension or dispute with them. Can you imagine Paul getting worked up over something? I guarantee you that brother could nail you to the wall. No small dispute. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, it tells you where they passed through. When they came, verse 4, to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and they reported all these things which God had done with them. But verse 5, notice, you still have some of these hard cases here, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, and Paul's right there, Some of those from the sect of the Pharisees who believed, believed in what? Believed in Jesus, right? These are converts to Christianity. But where do they still see their strongest affiliation? With the Pharisees. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them. And then read the last part of the verse yourself. What's the last part? Circumcision, but how much do we want to see go with that? Law of Moses. Anybody like to quote the law of Moses for me right now? Just say first five books. (laughs) I guess it's at least in the ballpark, right? Law of Moses. Did the law of Moses contain how you become ceremonially clean or unclean? Did the law of Moses contain which feast days were supposed to be observed and according to which calendar dates? Absolutely. All of these things were contained. So in other words, these were a group of people that were prevalent there in Jerusalem and apparently in other places that said, listen, We may have accepted the Messiah, but all this other stuff we've been doing, we're doing it, and they still need to do it. So that was something that was being pushed. Let's continue to look and see what they decided. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And they share some things. I'm not going to take time to read all of it, but notice what they say in verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Of course, everybody kept silent. And then notice verse 13, Acts 15, 13. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And he goes on to say to them, right? Therefore, verse 19, 
I'm skipping, but you can go back and read the context yourself. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. I could say a hearty amen to that. How about you? Here's a few good reasons. One of the reasons is we're asking them to do something we couldn't do. Number two, and more importantly, did Jesus come and fulfill the sacrificial system? Yes or no? Did Jesus come and fulfill the feast day system? Yes or no? Absolutely. In fact, I would say to you to continue to keep those feast days is to reject that which Jesus has done. Notice what he says to them. We shouldn't trouble them. Those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, verse 19, but notice verse 20, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. You see, those just weren't ceremonial things. Those were things that were established that innately existed, okay, that were innately bad things to do, not just ceremonial things. Go with me now to Genesis chapter 7. One other reference that I want to show you And then we're going to tie this to Acts chapter 10. So you can hold your place there if you'd like to. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 7. And what I'd like for you to tell me is how many Jews do you find in Genesis chapter 7? Is the Jewish nation in existence in Genesis chapter 7? All we have are the people who are willing to follow God. And we know based on biblical account that it was basically just Noah and his family. Yes or no? Okay, look at, if you would, with me to verse 2. Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, you shall take with you seven each of every what type of animal? Clean animal. A male and his female. Two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Friends, the point that I simply want to make is that this understanding of a meat that was clean or unclean was established long before there was a Jewish nation. It was something that God established way back at the beginning. Question for you. Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. Do you remember the vision? What did he see in the dream? He sees a sheet coming down, and on the sheet, he finds special K loaf. That really would have been an abomination. Amen? What did he find? Did he find clean meats or unclean meats? Question for you. Was Peter's dream before or after the ascension of Christ? It was after the ascension of Christ. Jesus had ascended back to heaven. Peter's doing his missionary work. He's working. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And Peter had been given victory over this whole nonsense of not being able to eat unclean meats. Yes or no? Here's my point. Peter, still living now as a fully converted, faithful Christian believer, does he still hold to the tenets of things being clean or unclean as God had established them back in Genesis? Don't you think if Jesus had declared all meats clean that Peter would have not had an issue with the dream? In fact, He would have awakened and said, man, I dreamed about a great barbecue. But he didn't. He was troubled. The scripture says that he didn't understand what the dream was all about. And he said, even in the dream, no, I've never eaten such things and I'm not going to do it now. And friends, this was after the ascension of Christ. This was one of the founders of the Christian church. In fact, it's the person that's pointed to by the Roman Catholic church that says he was the first pope. I don't believe that. But my point is, If Peter were eating hog meat, I think we would know that. And I think if Peter was still observing that which was clean and unclean innately, then Paul would not be writing in the book of Romans chapter 14, talking to them about things that are clean or unclean. He's talking about those ceremonial things that are trying to be imposed on people. How many of you that makes sense, yes or no? I hope that you see a pattern here. 
We have to compare Scripture with Scripture. We have to dig in and try to ask what would have been the basic understanding of the people who first heard the message. And if they were Jews and Greeks, as we saw pointed out in three different times in this book, then we have to go and look elsewhere in Scripture and find out what were their struggles. And when we see those struggles, those struggles now inform what we're reading in the text. Go back with me to Romans 14 and let's wrap this up. I want to land in verse 13. There's some other great things to read here in Romans 14. I can't cover every verse, but I hope that you get the overall gist of what's being addressed. But notice verse 13. Therefore, let us not what? Have you remembered the lesson that I've taught you as what judging means? Our society says that if you call sin by its right name, that's judging. The Bible actually says judging has to do with, are you second guessing? Or are you trying to say that you know someone's motives? Laura, can I pick on you now? How many of you would agree? Laura, raise your hand so people can see where Laura's sitting. How many of you would agree that Laura's wearing, is that a sweater or a jacket? So it's a sweater. Laura's wearing a white sweater. I'm judging her or statement of fact. Now, if I say to Laura, Laura, I know you just wore that white sweater because Fred thinks it's cute and you're trying to impress him and you want to catch his eye. And that may be true. You should say yes, brother. I'm trying to help you. Anytime somebody tees it up for you, put it down the fairway, right? But I don't know. All I know, the factual basis is that she's wearing a white sweater. I have no idea why she wore it unless she tells me. But when I try to discern her motive without her input, then I'm judging her. But just to simply say, Laura is wearing a white sweater. He's not judging. Please, friends, please remember that. Don't let this world twist your mind. And just when you call something what it is, well, you're judging. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> it says, let us therefore not judge one another. And when the Bible talks about this, it resonates with what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 1. What did he say? Judge not, lest ye be what? Jesus was big on this. You don't know someone's motive. Don't try to say that you do know their motive. If they tell you, yeah, pastor, I wore this white sweater today because I thought it was cute. Now I don't have to guess because she's told me. Friends, let's be accurate. Let's not judge one another. In other words, let's not try to discern their motives without their input. But I love the last part. Look at the last part of verse 13 with me. But rather, resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. So do you have freedom in a particular area? That God's given you victory? I have areas in my life that I feel like God's given me a certain level of victory. How many of you have picked up on the fact that I like music? Okay, those of you that didn't raise your hand, you're not observant. I love music. How many of you think I want you to listen to what's on my phone? Or what's the pastor listening to? Whew, now I want to know. I just listen to Christian music. So I'm kind of like that one elder. When I was coming up, all I wanted was the heavy metal, the rock, the blues. Never really cared for country. It was like a perpetual depression moment. And I just couldn't get into the whole country thing. I never liked rap. Just wasn't my thing. I liked the rock and all the heavy metal and all that kind of stuff. But I came to a point in my life where God convicted me. That's not building you up. That's not drawing you closer to me. So it needs to get out of your life. And what really God had to do was embarrass me in front of a coworker. I've shared this story with you guys. I'll share it just briefly to close. I was working for a company doing drilling and blasting. We drilled holes in rock. We filled it with explosives and we blew it up. 
If you've never seen 30,000 pounds of explosives go off, it's awesome. But I had a company truck. And in that company truck, I had one of my favorite cassettes. Anybody remember those? They were not quite as big as a phone, they had magnetic medium, little wheels. I had one of my favorite cassettes in there. It was a Metallica cassette. Another coworker had to borrow my truck over the weekend. I'd left my cassette in there. He gives me my truck back the next Monday, hands me my keys, and he knew that I didn't work on Sabbath. He knew that I didn't do certain things. I tried to live my life as a devout Adventist Christian. When he gave me my keys back, he said, somebody left something in your truck. I said, what was it? He said, well, it was in your radio. He said, I know you, Mr. Bible Thumper, that couldn't have been your tape. The Lord had to use someone who was lost by his own profession, not my judgment, someone who wanted nothing to do with God, but he saw it as an incongruence for me to profess to follow Christ, and still this music was a part of my life. How do you think that felt? So I prayed, and I said, Lord, give me victory. Now, if I'm going to look at you, if you're listening to country, I'm simply going to think you have bad taste. I'm not going to love you any less. The Lord convicted me on that. Should I follow where the Lord convicted me? I don't want to be a stumbling block to someone else. I can promise you there's no Metallica on my phone. (laughs) What has the Lord convicted you of that you haven't let go of? Where has the Lord brought to bear something on your heart where you said, no, Lord, not yet. Not yet. I'm willing to follow you this far, but that just feels like a little too fanatical for me. Maybe music's not a stumbling block for you. It was for me. And God dealt with my heart and he said, that's got to change in your life or it's always going to keep dragging you back to the world. That was my walk. Maybe it's something similar for you. I don't know what it is for you. But saints, two points I want to leave you with, and that's this. As we wrap up the class on Stumbling Blocks 101. Number one, follow the conviction the Holy Spirit puts on your heart and don't look back. Amen? Follow that conviction that God puts on your heart and don't look back. Keep moving forward. Point number two is this. Don't impose your convictions on everybody else. Pray, be an example. If somebody asks you, why do you not do that? Share with them your journey. But don't make yourself the Holy Spirit for everybody else. What do you say? Does that sound like a fair assessment? That's what I see coming out of this text. Live what you've been convicted to live and don't look down on others because the Holy Spirit hasn't brought them there yet. But God's dealing with his children. Doesn't he want to take us all to the same place? Doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're all going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? If he's going to change all of us, he's the one that's going to have to do it. I can't be the Holy Spirit for you, nor you for me. But by God's grace, I want to follow his conviction. And I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody else. What do you say? Let's pray together. Dear Father, I just want to thank you that you who have suffered the greatest offense, your love has been spat upon. Your truth has been trampled. Your intentions have been maligned. Your character has been butchered. If there's anybody who has been offended, it's you. But yet you answer those offenses with love. You answer those offenses with grace. You don't turn your back on us. You would have full right to do so. But yet you say, I will continue to pursue you. Father, thank you for such grace, such mercy, such love. And Lord, we who claim to be your children, may you fill us with the same love, grace, and mercy for the world around us. Not that we don't call sin by its right name, 
but that we let you do the work that you are more than capable of doing. Father, I'm reminded of Jesus' words. When he was speaking to the disciples, he did not tell them, I'm sending you to bring conviction to the world on sin, righteousness, and judgment. He told the disciples, I'm sending the comforter, the helper, the spirit of truth. He will bring conviction. So Father, I see it very clearly as it's my job to embrace that conviction that you bring to my life, to live out the truth you have given me and to do so without shame. And Father, help us to be filled with that love, grace, and mercy as you're doing the same thing for the man or woman, boy or girl right beside me. May we give them that same room to grow that you have given us. May we always hold up your truth. May we never be ashamed of it. May we live it out loud. But let us not live in such a way that we become a needless stumbling block for those around us. Please, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we do not yield to your conviction. Forgive us for the times that we persist in sin. Forgive us for the times where we do judge unfairly those beside us. Give us your love, Father, that the world might encounter us and know that we have been with Jesus because of our love for one another. I thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. Thank you for your transforming power. You do not save us in sin. You save us from sin. May that be our reality today. I ask in Jesus' name. You have been listening to Pastor Daryl Bentley, the Associate Ministerial Director and Evangelism Coordinator for the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit a Seventh-day Adventist church this coming Sabbath? The congregation will enjoy sharing their worship service with you. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.